you know, the, the way that we go about Bible study in our church is relatively simple. We work through books of the Bible, and every once in a while we take a short hiatus to do something topical that's specific to our church or to, to our times or whatever. Um, but, but usually that's laid out well in advance, and it's, it's very rare that we get the chance to kind of just talk about what's, what the Lord's put upon our heart for now, for right now. And one of the neat things about this weekend is it gives us that chance uh, specifically, that uh, means to just take the time and kind of speak from the heart for us as a family, um, not just in, in the role and process of, um, you know, the whole counsel of God, as Paul talked, uh, talked about it, but, but right, right from the heart of our pastors. And so I'll be sharing tonight, um, Nick in the morning and James tomorrow night, and then Sunday, it'll just be our usual Sunday service just here. Um, so that's kind of the plan. Um, Tonight, if you've got your Bible, I'd like, you, like to, for you to open up to Acts chapter 19. We're going to be looking at um, a portion of time while Paul was in Ephesus. And the church and the ministry in Ephesus is probably one of the most covered in the story of the New Testament. Um, it tells us just in this chapter alone that, Sp- that Paul spent a year and a half teaching there in person. He returns a chapter later to give his um, kind of closing remarks to the Ephesian elders. Of course, he writes the letter of Ephesians uh, to the church in Ephesus. He then sends Timothy to Ephesus, and while he's there, he sends Timothy, not one, but two letters. Uh, So we learn more about the church, and then Ephesus is one of the seven churches spoken to in the first few chapters of the book of Revelation. And so we know more about the church in Ephesus than any church, including the church in Jerusalem. So it makes a very good study, a very broad and full study of what is the church, how is it to act, where, is it, where are its roots, what type of fruit does it bear, every question, what things does it struggle against, and how are those faced, it comes up over and over again. Um, another reason why um, it's helpful to look at Ephesus is because, for me personally, this story, Acts chapter 19, uh, just resonates with me so much. In, in our ministry, in our church, in our neighborhood, in our city, um, there's so many parallels for me, and, and I'm constantly drawn back to this chapter. Um, you know, when I answer the question, uh, what does it look like to be a pastor? I flip forward a couple of chapters, and I, I read Paul speaking to the Ephesian elders. I've just always resonated with this church. The very first full book we taught through as a church was the book of Ephesians. And so here in Acts chapter 19, um, let me add just one more reason why this is worth um, looking at. As I mentioned, Paul spends over a year and a half ministering here. And so we watch as he moves from 12 almost Christians uh, to a complete culture shift. By the end of the chapter, not only is there riots because of the Christian presence, but the economy has shifted. The silversmiths have a full gathering of their entire guild and go, we're losing money like crazy because of Christianity, right? They've had an economic impact on the city of Ephesus. And not just that, but that economy that they impact is of the creation of these idols for Diana, the city's goddess, Okay, and so it's more than just an overthrow of the, of the religion of money in the city of Ephesus. It gets right at the very heart of the idols of the city. 
And so it becomes a great, uh, great study of what does it look like for the church to change a culture? What does it look like for the gospel to completely turn the world upside down as the apostles were accused of doing? And so it makes for us a, uh, a very good study. Um, the portion that I'd like to read for tonight, well, let me, let me walk through kind of all the sections and then we're only going to read one section. Um, nope, I changed my mind. And I'll tell you why really quickly. The, live, uh, the word of God is living and powerful. Or some translations say living and active. And I love that because it essentially says that the Bible itself is two things you never think of as a book. One is alive versus inanimate. And the other is active versus inactive. Okay, normally we read a book, but when it says that the Bible is active, it means it's the one doing the work. Right? In, t- in terms of subject-object, there's a sense where we are the object, and the scriptures is the subject doing the action. We're the direct object the action is being done to. It is speaking, and it's speaking to us. Uh, and so it's worthwhile to, um, to read it, just recognizing that it's living and active. So let's do that. Um, let's read the first 20 verses, chapter 19. And it happened... While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we've not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, And what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There was about twelve men in all. And he entered the synagogue, and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, before the congregation he withdrew from them, and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of uh, Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched the skin were carried away to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but an evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded." And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this case study of your work in a city, I pray, Lord, that you would show us our place um, in our circumstances. I pray that you would rearrange the furniture of our theology 
um, the way that we think about how you go about interacting with, transforming, and even overturning um, a city and bringing forward your gospel. I just want to confess collectively, that's what we want. That's what we desire. We want to see tremendous transformation by the power of the gospel for our friends, for our families, for our neighbors, and for our city. So we ask that you would show us these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Like I said, this is a good study across the board. There's so many things here that we could focus on. Um, It's worth mentioning that the name of Jesus had already reached Ephesus, right? These disciples that uh, Paul finds in the beginning, something feels off about them. And so all they know about Jesus is he's the one that John spoke of. And so Jesus, or uh, Paul here clarifies who Jesus was, that he did come, they're baptized in his name, and bam, there begins the church in the city of Ephesus. Then Paul does his usual thing, and he's speaking at the synagogue regularly, reasoning with them that Jesus is the Messiah. Some respond, and hostility builds, and so he steps out of the synagogue and expands his ministry into the rest of the city. Now here, he does something that we don't see anywhere else. It says that he rents the hall of Tyrannus. Uh, and he, for two years, uh, speaks there. Now, it says there in verse 9 that he was reasoning daily, and the word there for reasoning is actually dialogesimai. It means to dialogue. It actually implies that Paul wasn't lecturing as if he selected the material and then spoke on a topic, but that he was fielding questions and was actively responding to them, and he was doing this, basically apologetics for the gospel, daily for two years. Okay. Uh, then we see that at the same time, miraculous happenings were going on. Jesus' power was present to heal, and it was present to heal even when Paul was absent. It looks like people were stealing uh, you know, his apron and his handkerchiefs and taking them to the sick and the demon-possessed, and, and miraculously it was showing up. We also see that there was very quickly a distinction being made by Jesus as a, um, as a mantra. Jesus as a powerful thing to refer to versus the church. And so we see the seven sons of Sceva try and do the same thing. Um, and they're chased out of the house naked and wounded. And then finally we see, um, all, we see a book burning. All of these spell books brought into the, into the city and burned. Now, here's an interesting thing about the book of Acts that comes out very clearly in this chapter. Luke is like any historian trying to make a point. He's not just recording history. He's selective. He chooses what to tell us about. Uh, And as he does so, he's got a point that he's trying to make. And the major theme throughout the book of Acts is the spread and growth of the church. Um, Some of the most used words in the books are grow, spread, many, These are the words that he uses, and he gives us throughout the book what we call a Lucan progress report, which is basically he just puts some sort of a numeric or a progress reference on what's going on. Now, why am I telling you all this? I'm telling you because here in Ephesus, he does it three times, okay? Three times we see these Lucan progress reports here. And what I want to draw your attention to tonight is where is the watershed moment? Where does the dam break free? Where does it change from the gospel growing in the midst of the city to the gospel transforming the city? Where where does it start to shift um, from normal to supernatural? Where is the threshold? 
And when we look at these progress reports, we can see what's going on. The first one we get after Paul has been speaking at the halls of Tyrannus. Okay, so for, for a couple of years, he's been doing this. And what it says here, what Luke tells us is pretty incredible. It's in verse 10. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Notice it doesn't say all the residents in Ephesus. It says Asia, the entire region that Ephesus is the biggest city in. And so what this implies is that, um, you know, Ephesus, kind of like Seattle being such a center place, people are constantly flowing in and out of it. And through Paul's preaching and apologetic dialogue ministry, the understanding of what the gospel is is spread across the entire region. Okay. And so he speaks hyperbolically here, no doubt, but he speaks and he says, all of Asia has now heard the word of the Lord, okay? But that's not where the watershed moment is. That's not where it happens. What comes next is one of the places where we're tempted almost always to put that line, the miraculous, right? What we see coming next is that Paul uh, is doing incredible miracles. And not only that, it's not matchable miracles. If you go back to the Old Testament and you look at the book of Exodus, um, there's this strange phenomenon during the 10 plagues where some of those things, the court magicians, the Egyptian magicians who work for Pharaoh, actually can repeat some of the same consequences that Moses does. And the reason why it's really odd is because a lot of them, I don't know why you'd want to make things worse, right? But there comes a point where they can no longer match what's going on and they have to kind of uh, throw in the towel and say, okay, this is bigger than us. This is more powerful than us. This is greater than us. And that's part of, by the way, the story of what God is doing in the Exodus narrative. In the beginning of it, Pharaoh says, I don't know who the Lord is. Why would I send you out to worship the Lord? Who's the Lord? I don't know. And so God says, okay, Pharaoh, I will show you who I am. And I will show you that I'm not like your gods. And I will show you that I am the God of not just Egypt or the Nile. I am the God of all creation. And so that's part of the story. Here we see that same distinction playing out in the miracles that this isn't a repeatable phenomenon. These uh, Jewish itinerant exorcists, which even in Hebrew I imagine is difficult to fit on a business card, uh, they're here, and they recognize there's power in the name of Jesus, so they just decide to add it to their repertoire. It's like if you've ever seen The Mummy, there's this occasion where the tour guide comes face-to-face -face with the mummy, and he pulls out of his neck this chain, and it's got all of the big religious charms, and he's just holding them out one by one, hoping one of them will stop the mummy, right? That's how these itinerant preachers are working. They're pragmatists. They go, oh, there seems to be power in the name of Jesus. We need power. And so they try and utilize it, and it goes poorly for them. Um, here we get another progress report. Look at what it says here in verse 17. This, this happening to these itinerant exorcists, this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Okay? Now, there, we almost have our aha moment where it's like, okay, look at, look at the entire city. Jews and Greeks now are extolling the name of Jesus. Doesn't that mean that Christianity has won out? We have to recognize here that this idea of extolling can exist without actually responding to it. Okay? What, what this says is basically that they also recognize the power of Jesus, that it's different than anything else they've seen, but that's all it tells us. 
In fact, earlier in the book of Acts, it uses this same term, extolled, to speak of the Christian community, and it puts it like this. It says, the church at this time was highly extolled, though nobody joined them, meaning that everybody effectively recognized something big was happening there, so they kept their distance, okay? It's after what happens next that we get a very different progress report. Look at what it says in verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Do you hear that word prevail? Prevail means the floodgates had opened. Prevail means the tides have turned. Prevail, in fact, this word for prevail, you want to know the funniest place it's used in the entire New Testament? When it says, uh, when it says that Judas went out and hung himself and his organs gushed out, that word for gushed is the same word. Okay? It means to break the bounds. It means what was once your insides is now your outsides. Okay? Where the church was an enclosed phenomenon, it's now everywhere. Okay? It prevailed. And it prevailed mightily. Okay? And so we have to ask ourselves, what is it? What was the linchpin of the progress of the gospel in the city of Ephesus? And I do not want to downplay these other parts of it because they're very important. Okay? You can see a progressive move forward. It begins with the fact that all have heard, and then that all extol, and now suddenly it prevails. And what is it that happens? Look again at verse 18. It says, Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Do you see that? This is the happening. This is the event. This is the threshold where suddenly, like, um, like that game at the arcade where coins are just you know, building up on the ledge and that final coin comes in and they all spill over, this is that event. Okay, And what is it? Okay couple of things that I want you to note here that aren't easy to recognize if you don't slow down and notice them. And the first is, who is confessing these things? Notice again what it says in verse 18. Also, many of those who were now believers came. Okay, now I want you to understand here, and I want to be clear. This is not that many became believers and came forward confessing and divulging. It says that those who were past tense believers, now present tense, came forward and confessed. Okay. What I'm saying here is that this great event that happens, happens in the church, and it happens when the church divulges and confesses things that have been going on. Okay. Specifically here, it mentions, um, it mentions that their practices were bound up in magic arts and spell books. Okay. So there is a dark magic happening in the confines of the church. We're not told if it's happening privately and in closets. We're not told if it's a bigger reality. It just, we're just told it's there. Okay? And suddenly, for whatever reason, there's conviction. And in reaction to this conviction, they come forward and it says confessing and divulging. Right? Bringing it all into the light. Making it all known. Exposing the reality of these things. Okay? And then it says that those who practice magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. 
and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Okay, so here's some grammar to nail down that's helpful as well. It says in the sight of all. There's two possibilities here. In the sight of all the church or in the sight of all of Ephesus. Okay, now personally, I'm prone to believe that it's the second mainly just because it doesn't specify, and every other use of all in the chapter has been talking very broadly, okay? Not to mention the fact that if you bring together 50,000 pieces of silver uh, worth of spellbooks, that's a pretty big bonfire, okay? This is right in the heart of an ancient city of Ephesus. I think this would be noticed. Not only that, but it also tells us that they counted the value of them, and you have to ask the question, who? I assume it's the all, and I would say it's much more likely that the ones who were interested in the value of all those spell books that were suddenly being destroyed was the city of Ephesus. Okay? And so here's, here's what I'm talking about. Okay? We're talking about existing sin in the church that's dealt with in such a way that the city notices. Okay? That seems to be where it all shifts here. That's where it completely changes. Now, I want to be really clear here because when we read this passage, it reads like Jerry Springer. Here's what I mean. Uh, I don't anticipate, I guess I could be wrong, but I don't expect that any of you have lots of occultic items laying in your closet. And so we tend to look at this and it looks shocking, it looks surprising, it looks terribly exotic. It looks Jerry Springer, right? It, It looks like something we wouldn't expect to be going on in our days. But what you have to understand is in Ephesus... This is the status quo behavior. To this day, in our ancient digs of Ephesus, we found a surprisingly large amount of what we would call occultic material. In fact, one of the things that we have just piles and piles of is incantations. Just little sentences that you would read for health or would roll up and keep above your hearth to keep the evil spirits out. In fact, that's why the seven sons of Sceva most likely tried to just harness the power of the name Jesus because they were used to using names to get things done. Okay? And so this is not some exotic sin or some compelling testimony. And just by way of reminder, this is also not just someone who, you know, at an evangelistic rally comes to Jesus and tells the story of who he was yesterday and he has this incredible transformation testimony. This is a progressive sanctification issue. This is an inside the church, not outside issue. This is a happen later than becoming a Christian, not happening when you were a Christian or when you became a Christian. That's the reality that reads here. And the reason why I'm hammering this so much is because I think, honestly, it's surprising. I think even if you're familiar with this passage, we have a tendency com- to completely miss that part of the story. In fact, just recently I was lecturing uh, in, another, in another group on this passage, and a pastor sitting in the room actually stopped me and challenged me here. But I've done my homework, okay? The Greek phrase here that says, those who have believed, is in a very particular tense Okay? It always refers to those who earlier have believed, not those who just five minutes ago believed. Okay? Every time Paul, Luke uses it, it refers to those who have believed. Okay? Those who have already believed. So we have a tendency to miss this. But I want you to hint, uh, hit the final line again, verse 20. So, because of this, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Here's what we could effectively call what happens in Ephesus. We could call it a revival. Okay? A revival is when the Spirit of God, through the means of the church, breaks forth into culture and transforms it. 
And I will tell you, if you study revivals, that it never begins outside the church. It never begins at an evangelistic rally. That's always after the revival has begun. Revival consistently, if you study revival, begins in the church. Okay? It begins when the church is renewed and it spills out of the doors into the church and into the city. This is true, by the way, in the Old Testament as well. There are occasions where we can observe revivals, but they all begin in and flow out. It starts with transformation in, and then it overflows its banks. Okay. So why is this the case? Outside of what I think we might label the obvious, um, It's put in simple little sentences like this one. God often works in us before he works through us. Okay, Outside of that fact that there might be stuff in our inbox that God's been trying to get us to move to our outbox. Outside of the fact uh, that there is this tendency with sin to not be so good at hearing God. To not be so good at seeing what he's doing in other areas. In fact, to be really frustrated because God seems distant, but it's because we've put all this stuff in front of him. Okay? But I want to point out the other side. What is it that makes this happening so impacting to the city? Is it it that God finally goes, finally, now I can really use you, right? Is that what God is waiting for, just a purified people so that there's no taint or anything in the issue, so the pipe is clean and he can just cause his spirit to flow through? That's a partial truth. There's a reality there. But there's another aspect that I think is really important. What I want you to see here is that this practice of confession, which first and foremost is honesty. Okay, that's what confession means. It means to be honest. It means to come into the light. So you're not hiding anything in the darkness, but it's exposed. And secondly, we see here that 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 exposure happens to be more public. Okay, it's it's not um, exposure just by the church, but it's seen in a broader audience. And like I said, this is not a miraculous testimony or a crazy conversion story reality. This is usual stuff that everybody in the city took advantage of, used in their life, was used to, wouldn't have seen as sinful, whereas much more likely to see it as essential. Not just normal, but something you need, right? So what does this do? Two things that I think are really important, okay? The first is it shows the city that Jesus is interested in saving people like them. This is a big deal, okay? Because there is this tendency for the church to come off, and I don't know why it's the case. Actually, I do. It's our fault. Uh, To come off like we've got our stuff together. And so this distance is created, and honestly, you know people like this who believe that Christianity is for people who've already cleaned up their lives, right? And I have these conversations still, And sometimes I overhear conversations in the light of places that are about completely opposite things. This fall, we're doing this project with filmmakers, The Great Divorce. The Great Divorce's great question is, what will you choose over heaven? Not what will send you to hell, but what is it in your life that's so important that you would actually refuse what God is offering you in Jesus Christ because this right now seems more valuable? Where are we being short-sighted? Where are we settling for our desires? These are the questions that C.S. Lewis asks, and it's moving, and it's powerful. I saw it performed once, and I'm walking out of the theater, and the couple in front of me goes, I guess C.S. Lewis just wants us all to be good. And I thought to myself, really? 
two hours of ball-your-eyes-out performances and that's what you got is good behavior makes all the difference? There is this reality that that's just the human heart. Good equals blessing. Good equals heaven. Righteousness equals a way, uh, you know, to get God to reward us. These types of things. That's true. But there's this other part. There's this other reality in the Christian life where it just seems that even if our lives were a struggle with sin, Jesus fixed all that, and now, now there's a distance there. Now there's a place. But here, when the Ephesians see the church repent of this issue, they might as well be seeing themselves. They're seeing what Christianity would look like for them. I think that's a very striking phenomenon. Listen, the reason why this has become so important to me, and I'm going to be really honest here, but when, when we started a church on Capitol Hill, I would have never said this was the plan, but this was the plan. I thought that God would bring us to the neighborhood, and although we were sinners dealing with other sins, we would help people deal with their different sins, their very different sins than ours. I, I never would have articulated that. It wasn't written on paper, but I really believe that's how I thought ministry worked. And so we would show up, and there were these people who were messed up in all of these areas that we were not, and we'd help them in some way. Okay? What I've learned, not just from this passage, but from life, is that the story is a little bit different. That the way that God reaches a city is that he plants Christians in the middle of it, and then he transforms them in the midst. Okay? And I've seen this in our own life as a church. But here's, here's the missing thing, because what we want to avoid here is like, okay, well, what I need to do then is just get really messed up and enculturated so Jesus can save me out of it, right? And then I'll just bring a bunch of people with me. It's like some sort of raid in, the, in, the, you know, in hell, a friend of mine used to call it the submergent church. That if we want to reach murderers, we just, we just murder some people, and then we can empathetically explain how Jesus helps us with those things, right? It's ridiculous. It really is. But what we're talking about here is recognizing the fact that already, as you sit in this room, you have more in your sinful behavior, in the depths of your heart, in the reality of the problems that God is fixing. You have more in common than you have not in common with our city. And I honestly know this more than anyone. Okay? Because here's what I've discovered. All of my sins are inherently relational. That at the heart of where I struggle as a person and where I fight and where I'm blind and where I have issues and what I've learned because my life has had a lot of turnover and so what's happened is all of these relational sins I basically left behind me like Noah getting on the boat, Right? Uh, and then I'd get to a new garden, and I'd muck that one up again, but I'd move on so quickly I never saw it. But it's funny, when you're the pastor of a church, the mess stays put, right? Because it's your mess, it's your backyard, that's where it happens. And so after a while, it was inescapable, inescapable, and then suddenly, as I was looking at my own sin, suddenly I saw that this is relationship is a huge problem in our culture. And I can't necessarily speak broader about American culture. I, I assume that some of these things are the case. But pay attention to what's going on in Seattle. How much of the stuff that we see that breaks our hearts is rooted in isolation? Is, is rooted in um, not knowing how to rightly relate to other human beings? Is rooted in antisocial behavior and a blindness to that, so it's always their fault? Can I just point out that the Seattle freeze, it, that reality, it's a bigger issue. And even when you look into sexual sin, always, sexual sin is never about pleasure. It's about intimacy, always. 
And we don't know how to be intimate as a culture. And when I discovered these problems in myself, suddenly I had insight into the fact that these people are me. That this city is just like me. That this reality, and I'm, I've recognized and already seen, but I also um, am, in, am smattering this with an assumption based on this passage and what I have been able to see, that it's a two-way street. There's something compelling about meeting someone like you who's a Christian when you're not a Christian. I don't know if you remember what this is like, but I do. There's this tendency when you walk into a church, you have two choices. To remove yourself because, because it's so different than you. Or the, the other tendency that I find is, is to look around and go, oh, these people are so different, and then just put your face on. And go, this is, this is what it looks like to be religious or a churchgoer or a Christian. Hypocrisy breeds hypocrisy, and so the church puts on a mask, and so do we, right? And things aren't dealt with. But there's something so compelling about recognizing that the gospel is for you. That, de- that Jesus doesn't just save generic sinners. He saves sinners like you. And that, I think, is what's happening here, okay? Listen, when we were just a prayer meeting, God gave us a verse, okay? And it's been kind of the life verse of a church. Even if you've never heard it, it shaped everything we do as a church. This is what it is. It's from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. It's verses 9 and 10. And this is what Paul says to the Thessalonians. He says, For people everywhere have heard how you turned from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who delivers us from the coming wrath. And as we prayed about that, there were a lot of elements that kind of stood out of what God was calling us to, but that first one is the most important. A people who have turned from idols to serve the living and true God. And what I've realized is that that's not a process where it's like God saved us and then plants us in a new place and we just are, are there as the representative no longer worshiping idol folks. We're still turning for miles. It's a present tense phenomenon. The church in Ephesus is saved before verse, uh, verse 18. These people know Jesus. They've seen him work in their lives. They've responded to him. They're fully trusting in him. And yet there's this huge issue that I assume one of two things is possible here. Either they're unaware that it's a problem, right? Because it's always been a part of their life. And so, you know, we can imagine they're reading through the Old Testament and it talks about the sin of witchcraft and somebody goes, oh, man. Oh, does that mean what I think it means? Or more likely... It seems like such a minor thing. It's just, it's just a normal life thing. This is something everybody does. It's not hurting anybody, right? It's, it's not any threat to Christianity. I see them as categorically different. You know? They would have put this probably in the same category today as we would the horoscopes in the, in the Sunday paper. right? But whether it's an issue of indifference for them or one that they are just ignorant of, both of those phenomenons happen to us all the time. Okay, The, the reality is... Even in the specific issues, all of us have lifelong sins. You know what I'm talking about? Just, just when, when somebody asks you, what has Jesus saved you from or is saving you from or will save you from, there's that thread that weaves through all of it. Okay? It was pretty evident when I first became a Christian because I was, um, I was an ass. To put it simply, I don't really know another more appropriate term. That's what it was. I was incredibly witty, and I used my tongue to gain respect without allowing people in. 
Um, I spent a good deal of time arguing and tearing people down. I would get myself into situations and not see how they were my fault, like getting in an argument with a girl driving a car, and now she's doing 100 because she's so angry on the freeway, okay? And going, man, she's got an anger problem, but I was so the problem, okay? Uh, that's, that's who I was. And there were so many other elements of it in it involved. Um, and there's this tendency... It happens every couple of months or every couple of years where I hit the wall again in my faith, where I recognize there's a major place where God's laying his finger on my life. And as soon as the dust settles, I go, again? Really? You know, what I really feel like is I've let Jesus come in and just demolish this with a bulldozer, and he's done with the work. And then I'm walking through the lot one day, and I realize there's a basement. And beneath the basement is another basement, right? Can, can you relate to this phenomenon? There's this reality here. Um, but all of that, once again, to say that there are still things where Jesus wants to change you. There are still places where you're completely content in your own sin and Jesus is not. There are still places where God has better things for you. And in the words of C.S. Lewis, you're comfortable with your mud pies, right? That is reality right now. But as we continue to allow change and as we do it in a way that's evidently public, one of the things it does is it says, oh, we're not so different. The, what I want you to recognize tonight is, is not, just, um, not just that you're capable of all these sins that you see around you, which is true. Uh, it's that when you get to the heart of what sin is, when you go the Sermon on the Mount way, and you're not just talking about murder, but you're talking about hatred, and you're not just talking about adultery, but you're talking about lust, when you get to the roots, no matter how much it manifests, or no matter how much your cowardness or your self-righteousness keeps you from you know, following that to its end, you're not that different from other people. And it's a two-way street. And when you're public and honest and you allow Jesus to do with your sin, it's intentional. It's intentional in the fact that God is demonstrating who he is and what he's capable of in your life. Testimony is not a past tense phenomenon. It's a present tense reality. Okay? But there's a second thing here. And to me, it's the much more important. Like I said... My instinct tells me that when they count this and it comes to 50,000 pieces of silver, which is a couple of years' income for an average person, it's a large amount of money, I imagine the ones doing the counting are not the Christians. Because we have a tendency when we see sin for what it is and when we give it up, like Paul, to see that loss as nothing in comparison to gain. Right? The inflated reality of Jesus makes the dimes of our sinful choices nothing in comparison to the riches in Christ Jesus. But it does the same thing, albeit differently for the outside world. It shows them the value of Jesus. Okay? Because when we repent and we walk away from things, when we stop things, what we are always saying as Christians is not just this is bad and it will send me to hell. We're saying Jesus is better than this. You see, the reality for us in sin is transformed because we are already forgiven. But we also see sin for what it is, deceptive and destructive. And more importantly, like we learned last week in 1 Corinthians, 
we have the feast of Jesus Christ. And so we don't need the crust of bread. We don't need, you know, the pottage of stew like Esau had. We don't need to sell out for something less because we have everything we need in Christ Jesus. And so every time we publicly repent of our sin and live honestly in a way that lays aside things that the world finds important, because ultimately that's what adultery says. It says, my marriage is not enough. My life is not enough. Life isn't worth living without this on the side. And so is buying the bigger house. And so is having the right job. And all of these things come down to this issue of life is only worth living with. And so repentance in that sense is contentment. And more importantly, it's also reality. It says, no, 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 Jesus is worth so much more than this. Jesus tells a couple of stories um, about men who accidentally discover something of tremendous value in something that's only got a little bit of value, right? And so one of them is a treasure buried in a field. And so they go and they buy the field knowing that the treasure trumps the cost of the purchase, right? It's interesting to me that even though we've read those, when Jesus warns people who follow him to count the cost, we always do that only as a negative equation, right? We recognize the fact that Jesus promises that the Christian life is not easy, um, that there will be difficulty to come, and that human life is hard to begin with, and it's even harder when you follow Jesus, okay? That reality is there, and so Jesus is constantly saying, don't get this wrong. Don't think, disciples, I'm on my way to a throne, and you've got thrones sitting there as well. I'm on my way to the cross, and I want you to carry yours as well, right? He was very clear with the disciples. However, when he says count the cost, he's basically saying do your sums, and the only way we do that, because Christianity is not some sort of sadomasochistic reality that says pain is good, the only way we can make sense of a phrase like counts the cost is that you're comparing the cost to its worth right that's what it means to count the cost it says is this worth doing and like jesus's parable of the man who finds treasure in the field the answer is always yes okay whatever it is however high the auction goes you know the actual value of that land and you're willing to pay the price because it's not a loss at all it's only a gain That's what Paul says in Philippians. And what I'm pointing out to you tonight is that when we publicly allow God to deal with our sin, when we respond to conviction and we bring it in the light, even though we have a tendency to think that's the end of our lives, right? If I'm public with this, if I really just expose, you know, and and the church is one thing, right? That's, that's, That's our own issue that we've got to deal with, is recognizing the fact that the church is not always a safe place for sinners, even though Jesus always was, okay? But beyond that, there's this tendency to think, well, even if I've got my accountability in the church, I would never tell my non-Christian aunt. I would never tell these things to my neighbor. I, I keep those things hidden because it will ruin my witness. Listen. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevailed mightily. There are so many discussions right now that that come down to basically this. How can Christianity influence culture? And we've seen so many answers to this over the year. There's there's the political answer, right? That, That we just need to avail ourselves to the influence of politics and shape the world. Because if we bring about a Christian culture, then a Christian gospel makes sense. Okay? Now, most of us have come to realize that, A, 
it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't work. If you read the book of Revelation, the millennial reign kind of shoots that through the heart, right? A thousand years of perfect peace with Jesus ruling and reigning at the end of it, still rebellion. Why? Because conformity is not the way to Christianity, okay? But the other thing is we've also recognized we don't even have the option for that as a church right now, right? As Christians in America, we are no longer a cultural influence, Then there's the, the tendency for us to think, um, well, we, we just need to um, you know, avail ourselves to greater technology and utilize more places. And, and it, as we've been learning in, in 1 Corinthians, that's not always the case. Paul actually determines not to go the culturally acceptable and applicable route because it hinders the message of the gospel. And that's something we constantly have to recognize is that message and method go hand in hand and some methods constrain and even distort the gospel. And so we've got to be careful about that. We've got to watch out for these places where we just go, oh, well, there's a new technology or there's a new cultural thing and we can use it inside the church and not ask the bigger questions, what do these things do to people? What do these things do to the way that we view God? There's such a big difference between the way we build modern churches and ancient, and it's only in thoughtfulness, right? Flying buttresses exist to point to the heavens and make us look upward, right? That was an architectural design rooted in a theological principle, and now we're just like, yeah, this grocery store will do, and let's just put up lights, and there's no sunlight in here, right? And it's all just being whisked away. It's, it's very thoughtless. It just seems uh, advantageous. And that's enough for us. And so we've got to watch out for, for this as well as thinking the way we change the culture is to be on the cutting edge. Paul makes such a great impact here that the religion that the city is known for, that the temple is built for and you can still visit today, he makes such an impact that the economy is shifting and he doesn't do it with pickets and protests. In fact, can I show you something that I just think is so abnormal? I don't actually know how to process it. Here's what happens in the end of the chapter, okay? Uh, these silversmiths cause a riot, and all of the city floods into this amphitheater, and they're just chanting, chanting at, the top of their, uh, at the top of their lungs, great is Diana of the Ephesians. Most of them don't even know why they're there, okay? And the proconsul, who's kind of like the mayor, comes forward, quiets them down, and says, I don't know if you've noticed, but this is a riot, and we're a Roman colony, and we're completely threatening our existence by behaving this way. And he says, if somebody's got a problem, the courts are open. Deal with it this, but not this way. But listen to something that he says here. This is what he says in verse 37. For you've brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. In the New King James, it says, these men have not blasphemed our goddess an entire amphitheater of people who hate the Apostle Paul and no one can stand up and say, actually, yeah, I heard him. Isn't that weird? The point is here that Paul does two very simple things, and it manifests in a bunch of different ways, but it's two things, okay? One is he preaches the gospel, and that should make total sense. If you want to get rid of the darkness, you don't fight the darkness. You turn on the light, and Paul does that all the time in public, from house to house, within the church, he proclaims the name of Jesus. But the other thing he does is that he sets up this group of people who are being transformed by that said self-same name 
in the midst of the city. It's those two things. Okay? That's why there's the testimony of the gospel and the witness of the church. These two things go hand in hand. And the reality is there are so many lies that the devil tells us when it comes to our sin, even when we're primed and ready to deal with it. I'm just going to deal with it privately, which, as you all know, never works, right? Or even, even if I deal with it, I'm, I'm, this isn't something I'm going to be honest with. Or, like I said, in, in the way that we view our ministry, we've got our own issues, sure, but it's not like those issues. All of these things miss the reality of how God works in the church, which is, like I said, simply that he places a people in the midst of the city and transforms them on display, up on, you know, the, the jumbotron, visible for all to see. And the two things that people see when we live a life, not just of honesty that proclaims a different way entirely, right? Because we don't do some things because we have something better but also recognizes that there's still areas where God is working, still areas where we are um, unrepentant, still areas where we're ignorant of God's goodness. And as we continue honestly and visibly to respond to those things, it makes clear to the city that Jesus is for them as well. On the issue of homosexuality, the church has been the worst because we've made it unique. We've made it unique, and so it's, uh, it's worse than other sins. Unlike any other sin, it's completely damning and irreparable. Uh, it's, it's something different. When we invite um, people into the church, we invite them to a lesser church because we've overplayed the marriage and intimacy card, and so now we say, well, God is calling you to something that he doesn't call me to do because I can have a wife, right? When we get back to the reality of the New Testament, though, the balance of these things, we recognize that we all have sexual sin. We all have issues of intimacy. We all um, have both the option for marriage and celibacy, and they're both appropriate. Let me just remind you that Jesus's humanity demands that a full life can be lived single. Demands it. Tested in all ways, yet without sin, the scripture says about Jesus. And that was as a single man in his 30s. Are we okay with that? Because we should be. But the bigger issue at hand is when we see it as different, when we see it as unique, we instantly isolate it from what God is doing in our lives. And people notice. When Patrick went to Ireland, I don't know if you know the story of St. Patrick, but it's a good one. He was basically enslaved in Ireland, escaped because God in a dream told him there would be a boat parked that he, he walked basically 30 miles to find parked on the beach, got away, uh, and then uh, came back as a missionary to Ireland. But we have very little that Patrick actually wrote. And by the way, came back as a missionary. By the time he died, it had gone from no Christians to an entirely Christian nation. It's a completely interesting phenomenon to, to study from the idea of missions. But we have very few of his writings, and one of them is a letter to his own people back home who are enslaving the Irish. And you want to know what I love about this letter? As he's calling them out for their sin, he's, he refers to him and the Irish as we. He has become Irish. 
That's, that's one of the only things we recognize about his entire philosophy is that he entered into the ministry so much that it was we. It's something we see in the Bible as well. Why is it that Nehemiah or David uh, or, uh, or Ezra or Daniel, when these people come before the Lord and pray national prayers of repentance, why is it we? Is it just because he's standing in and being a team player and broadening things out? Does he really have his act together because he's in the Bible so he must be great? No, he's learned the reality that this is a we issue. It's very easy for us to say these things like evangelism is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. It's very easy to say that the church is not a museum of saints, it's a hospital of sinners. But are you willing to get your checkups? Are you willing out in public to wear, you know, your bracelet, your medical bracelet that explains your condition? Are you willing to be a work in progress? Or like the Corinthians, are you already, already full, already rich, already perfect, already exalted, already the new humanity and completely removed from the world? Not only is that foolish for your sake, Okay, I can't resist it now that I've put it in those words. Not just in Indiana Jones, but in every great adventure movie, there comes this moment where whatever it is the guy has been seeking, he now has to choose between it and his life, or it and the woman that he loves. And so you can imagine, can't you, Indy hanging in the precipice and the treasure's right out of reach, and then there's someone also, and the choice is either the treasure or the person, right? Okay, This is what I'm trying to say to you tonight. It's treacherous enough to have that treasure in your arm when you're trying to save your life, to be a one-handed Christian, if you will. But it's also a terribly ineffective witness because you've got one hand on Christ and your other hand full of the world and there's no hand to reach out to the world. And so what I'm saying tonight is that God is continuously emptying our hands and freeing us up to be effective as witnesses. That is the plan. Where does revival start? How does a city change? It changes right at our address, right at our coordinates, right in our midst, and then it prevails. Then it overflows. That's where God is working in our city. And we should be out and we should be present, but we should be out and present and publicly honest to the fact that Jesus not just has saved us, but is saving us. Let's pray. Father, we can be so foolish in these things. We wave the banners of politics or technology, contextualization, all of these things which you can use, but they're not the church. They're not your plan A. You said that you would build the church and that the gates of hell, the gates of Hades, the place where the dead are, would not prevail against it. And the reason is because in the church there is life. And in the words of John Stott, when the meat's going bad, you don't ask, why is the meat rotten? You ask, where's the salt? 
And when the world is dark, you don't say, how can we get rid of the darkness? You say, where is the light? And so I pray, Lord, that we would be comfortable with this reality, that you have things that you want to teach us this weekend and deal with right now, and that you want to do it publicly, that you want to demonstrate your glory in the goodness of repentance, in the reality of transformation, in the gift of forgiveness, that you want to make your worth known to the church and to the world as we surrender our sin and all the things that so easily ensnare us and run the race. And we don't just have a great cloud of witnesses, we have a watching world. So I pray, Lord, that we would run it, that we would continue to lay aside, that we, like Paul, would come to the place where we have not attained, but this one thing we do, stop looking backwards and press forward to the upward call of Christ Jesus. I pray, Lord, that you would change the city of Seattle through our church and through the churches of Seattle, but I pray that you do it through changing us. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.